Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Tonight's talk is on the Bhattacharata Sutta, a sutta on what it means to have an auspicious day. Um, this is a one-class break from our 26-class structured study of the Dhammapada. Um, and the reason why is just to, it's because um, our, our resident teachers, one of them is right here, uh, are going to start teaching within this series. And I wanted Jen to teach the fifth chapter. Uh, and so she's going to do that this Saturday. So we'll resume that. Uh, Ram is coming up next, and Kevin and uh, Matt will finish up uh, our teachers within this. Uh, and that's a, that is an auspicious day as well. It's one of the reasons why I picked this uh, this sutta to be a little bit cute with it. Um, we've we've trained four really incredible people. I know one of them is standing here, and I can see his head growing now. Ram is the the most humble person I've ever met, I think. Um, and you're going to start hearing. Not a different Dhamma, but a, a different way of presenting the Dhamma. Each one of these teachers is unique in their presentation. And you'll see that. I'm not going to describe it because you'll experience it. Um, beginning with Jen um, this Saturday. Um, it, it's also adding another depth to our Sangha that, that really was lacking. Not because of any, anything, any problem here, but we just weren't ready yet to have teachers. Uh, we went through a year-long teacher training. Uh, we had our teachers retreat, which was remarkable, and then you all experienced them, uh, their teaching capabilities at our online retreat, which was uh, to a person. Everyone said it was remarkable, and it was. So we, it it really is a uh, an auspicious time for for our sangha. So I'll, I'll I'll probably talk a little bit more about that on Saturday, but that's enough for tonight. This sutta, the Bhattacharata Sutta, is something I teach often. I almost always try to squeeze it in on retreat, even if it's not scheduled, because it, it, like many retreats, it's it's a complete how-to manual on what Dhamma practice looks like. Of course, you need to develop some of the underlying themes like dependent origination, four noble truths, eightfold path, and Dhamma meditation. Um, but this points to the key ongoing quality of mind for every Dhamma practitioner, or that every Dhamma practitioner should strive to develop, and that's wise restraint of what's occurring in this present moment. That's right mindfulness or refined mindfulness. And it obviously requires concentration. It requires developing jhana meditation in order to develop that quality of mind that can stay, that can stay, they're going to use this word purposely, radically present. And it's radical because the world is designed to not let us be present. And we'll talk with, <laughs> I can see you waving your head, Tim, up and down in agreement. And the, the, the sutta also explains why that's so important. So let me get into the sutta. Um, and this is a sutta that is on wise restraint. The Buddha was staying in Savati at Jita's Grove, Anathapandika's monastery. There he addressed the monks. So I did. It, sometimes I change that line from monks uh, to friends when it's clear to me that he's talking to a larger group later on in his teaching career. But this is likely early in his career, and it likely was just monks there. There probably weren't uh, women in the original Sangha yet. Buddha's words. Friends, I will teach you the meaning of an auspicious day. 
Do not chase after the past or project your thoughts on the future. Just like the first line in the Dhammapada, the first line in the sutta describes the entire sutta. It's, and when we're talking about the past, we're not necessarily or only talking about last year or in the, the magical beliefs of last lifetime or tomorrow or a future lifetime. The past, the past is one moment ago. The future is one moment in the future. And if we're one moment in the past or one moment in the future, there is no Dhamma. There's no reconciliation. There's no mindfulness. There's no concentration. Now, there's gradations of that, obviously. But that's what jhana practice is about. That's what dhamma practice is about. To slowly and very gently bring our minds that are always distracted to the past and to the future back into where our, the dhamma can be practiced with a mind united in its body right here and right now. Now we know how to, now the Buddha teaches how to do it. When we're not entangled with the world, be mindful only of what is occurring. It's really the same thing, but in a more emphasis on being mindful only of what's occurring. This is what we're holding in mind. Free of distraction, well concentrated, develop compassion informed by wisdom. And a key underlying theme of the Buddha, the Buddha noticed that just like today, most people that were involved in spiritual religious practice considered themselves doing that because they had to save the world or save their neighbors. The Buddha realized how, how hurtful that belief is, how distracting it is. And he took, took our minds away from that salvation, uh, the Messiah complex mentality to realize that dukkha occurs as a consequence of having life. There's no salvation from it. There's only understanding it. And if we're distracted by saving myself or others from, the, from the, the terrors of this moment, I've lost my mind. Why? It seems like an altruistic thing, doesn't it? Let me figure out a way to save everyone. That has been the common uh, concept for all of human society. How can we be saved from the evils out in the world? In the beginning, it was cavemen hiding from, from, from saber-toothed tigers. But since they couldn't handle it, they looked to the stars and they looked to God to protect them from the saber-toothed tiger. We still got saber-toothed tigers running around the world loose today, don't we? The saber-toothed tigers loose in the world today are called ideologies. And they're ideologies rooted in ignorance. It's the same exact problem that the Buddha awakened to 2,600 years ago. And so the, so the, the, the focus is on that same thing. And a mind rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths is always stuck in the past or stuck in the future. It's never present. So to resolve that, the reconciliation of that is to unite your mind and your body in a method that works and keep it there. The Buddha continues, mindfully engage with what is skillful. What is skillful is the Eightfold Path. The future is uncertain and death occurs equally for all. It, it, that's such an important teaching when you think about the Buddhist time, but also today. Even back then, death, especially a premature death, was taught as an aspect of karma, meaning in that way, not, not karma as the Buddha teaches karma, karma as it's, as it's used in pop, in pop culture, as punishment and reward. And the Buddha is saying here, death occurs equally for all. It has nothing to do with position, it has nothing to do with merit, it has nothing to do with faith, it has nothing to do with anything except having a consequence, having a human life. Death is a consequence of human life, period. Nothing else. 
Those who remain mindfully engaged with life as life occurs throughout the day have had a truly auspicious day. Throughout the day, moment by moment. Now the Buddha asks a rhetorical question. And how does one avoid chasing after the past? One does not get carried away with delight that in the past I had such a form, meaning a body, in the past I had such a feeling, in the past I had such a perception, in the past I had such a fabrication, in the past I had such a consciousness. Think about that one line a little bit deeper, and it contradicts everything we're told to do with our thoughts and our feelings, which is analyze them to death, find out where they come from, who's to blame for it. And usually, we're taught to find blame outside of ourselves, whether it's in an individual or look at the world today and society as a whole is the blame for how I feel. And if I can juice myself up to the point that my feelings are now rage, now I, now I can justify by expressing them. And that's given credence today, isn't it? It's mollified. It's an extreme example of what we do with our own feelings. We massage them. We give them credence, rather than recognize through the four foundations of mindfulness that this feeling, no matter how strong it is, no matter how full of rage it is, no matter how full of blame I am, it's just a temporary feeling. And if it's, if it's an excited thought or feeling, it's rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. It's rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. So the question then becomes, and it's a very significant question that all Dhamma practitioners will eventually ask themselves. Do I want to continue to be ignorant by basing my life, my moment-by-moment life, on how I feel and what I think about those feelings? Think about that. Do I want my base, my life, based on how I feel and how I'm thinking about my feelings? Because that's how my life was until I came to the Dhamma. And somehow I got the message that if I'm not feeling what I describe as happy or peaceful, then you're to blame, not me. And I literally wasted the first half of my life thinking that way and having that belief reinforced by many people, including so-called professionals. But of course, I'm not blaming professionals. I was asking them to, to, to validate my feelings. That's kind of what that's all about. It wasn't until I took radical responsibility for how I thought and how I felt and let me say it the way I just said it, and how I thought about how I feel. When I finally took radical responsibility for that, was I able to change it. When I was able to start gaining control of my mind and so gain control of my life, to the extent that human beings can control your life. I'm still subject to what the Buddha says is dukkha. I'm still subject to sickness, <laughs> aging, oh boy, I got it, and death, it's right around the corner. I'm still subject to being disappointed by not getting what I want and disappointed by getting what I might not want. Although I've realized that I don't have to be disappointed anymore. I can maintain a calm and peaceful mind through aging, through sickness, through disappointment, through fear, through anxiety, through worry, through a world that's going crazy. And I can do something now that the Buddha described 2,600 years ago, and it's what we talk about in each and every class. I can practice wise restraint and maintain a calm and peaceful mind. And guess what? It works. All of us talk about that in each and every class. It's remarkable. Let me continue. Let me go back to that one because it's such an important line, and then I'll try to keep my commentary short to get through this. One does not get carried away with the delight that in the past I had such a form, in the past I had such a feeling, 
In the past I had such a perception. In the past I had such a fabrication. In the past I had such consciousness. This is called not chasing after the past. It's simply not considering yourself in any way in the past tense. And how does one not project their thoughts on the future? One does not get carried away with a delight that in the future I might have such a form, in the future I might have such a feeling, in the future I might have such a perception, in the future I might have such a fabric fabrication, in the future I might have such a consciousness. This is called not projecting thoughts onto the future. Excuse me. So those two aspects describe most of modern spiritual practice and certainly modern Buddhism. Most of modern Buddhism, the way I was taught, was that if I can gain enough merit through certain through rites, rituals, beliefs, um, prayers, prostrations, in the future I'll get rewarded in, in their own form of Buddhist heaven called uh, erroneously nirvana. And it's always described in, in magical ways. That's the same belief in salvation, isn't it? And it's a hurtful belief because it takes me out of my life right here and right now. Now I'm living my life when I buy into that. I'm living my life not for what's occurring right now. I'm living my life right now for what I might get tomorrow or after death. Does anybody see a value in living a life like that? I can't see, so you can, you can say yes or no or not. If I believe that that's what life is for, to, for salvation, then that's how I'm going to live my life. If I believe that human life is meant to be lived while that human being is living that life, then I'm going to take to the Dhamma and understand that. And that one thing has changed everything. I grew up with the belief that I needed salvation. I couldn't understand it. In my, the religion I was brought up in, I was taught that I was born with something called original sin, which means I was bad before I even got here. And I could never figure it out. I never got a right answer, no matter who I talked to. And I talked to a lot of religious people. And it bothered me for a long time. I was bad enough with my own behavior to then be carried around something else that I didn't do really bothered me. Until I realized it was all BS. And what I'm responsible for are my actions. And there were times in the past that I hurt people inadvertently through my actions, through my thoughts, words, and deeds. But it was because I had no control over my thoughts, words, and deeds. Once I gained control of that, and even, even in a small measure, I stopped hurting myself and other people. Think about that. Now, I'm not talking about going out and punching somebody or, or rioting. I never harmed another soul inadvertently. Never. That's remarkable to me. But most importantly, because I've changed the way that I think, I no longer do things that hurt me. And I've also found that there's no one else to blame for how I am right here and right now. No one. That's the most liberating thought anyone can have. And who could be to blame? That adds another question to this whole thing about human life. Is there anyone to blame? Think about it. Is there anyone to blame for, for who we are right here and right now having a human life? How could there be? But if I start, if I need to apply blame 
because I cannot accept responsibility for who I am in the life that I'm living right now, I have to create magical thinking, don't I? There has to be some repository for blame, and once I do that, there has to be a repository for the escape from that. And again, I've just lost my mind by thinking that way. It doesn't make any sense, does it? Except we do it all the time. This is called not projecting thoughts onto the future. And how does one become, become entangled with the world? An uninstructed, ordinary person, lacking understanding of the Dhamma, sees form as a self or sees itself as form. Meaning, that just is another way of saying we start taking things personally. Confused, they see feeling as self or the self as possessing feeling. How many, there's that common rhetorical question, how are you feeling today? As if that's important. And how often do we say, oh, I had a good day or I had a bad day or this? And, we, and so we fall into the trap of describing ourselves by the way we feel about our day. Isn't that crazy? Because the feeling, it, it changes moment by moment, doesn't it? Or sometimes it changes by the way someone looks at us. Or how we think someone is looking at us. Rather than having control of my mind and maintaining a mind of equanimity no matter what is occurring. Which, by the way, is what everybody's asked after. We all want a way. We, People, people hoard coconuts, coconuts in their huts because they want to feel safe and protected from the outside world. We're still doing that. We're still piling up coconuts in our huts because we see the world as a threat. But it's our own thoughts about the world that are the true threat to our peace of mind. Change that thinking. Refine that thinking. And the threat disappears. And of course, there's some people that are going to be thinking about this, and this is the question that I got asked at our very first retreat. Well, what do you do when a train's coming at you and you're standing on the train tracks? Thinking that the Dhamma teaches you to be, just be passive and get hit by the train. The wise Dhamma practitioner takes two steps to the right and lets the train pass. The train is just life going by, and I'm a calm and at peace. Nothing happens. Nothing occurs. I'm disentangled from the world. Standing on a train tracks is being entangled in the world. Confused, they see their perceptions as self or the self as, perce as perceptions. Confused, they see their fabrications as self or their self as their fabrications. Confused, they see consciousness as self or the self as their consciousness. So that, that, that last line, we define ourselves in relation to the world through the way we think about ourselves in relation to the world. Uh, now I'm talking about the, the ultimate resolution of the Dhamma in the three marks of existence. So I've created a fabricated view of myself because of ignorance of, the, of reality, ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And once I create that fabricated view, that's me. I don't have a choice anymore. In fact, you could even say that I don't even have a responsibility anymore until I find something to recognize the process that I've developed myself, my own ignorance. And that's what the Buddha discovered, and that's why he taught an Eightfold Path rooted in jhana meditation. This is what the Buddha's words. This is what is meant by becoming entangled in the world. We become entangled in the world simply because we think we should be. We think we need to be entangled in the world in order to live in the world. Is there a comfort in that entanglement? Oh, thank you, David. Yes, it, it, and the, it, the comfort, the comfort is because of familiarity. It's not because there's anything inherent in being entangled in the world. It also takes responsibility away. It, it, takes, it takes all response, excuse me. Again, thank you, David. It, 
when I can continue doing something that everyone else is doing, meaning it, it, being entangled in the world, there's the, there's the excuse for my not taking responsibility. Well, everybody's doing it. And look at how we, we fall into the herd and the, and the mob mentality today. Many people would not say the things that they're saying if there wasn't a hundred other people standing around them saying the same thing. And I'm not just talking about rioters. I'm talking, this is the same thing that happens in corporate boardrooms too, by the way, not just, not just on, in, 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 in city streets today. And it's happened always. It happened continuously. The more and more people that can cling their ideas together, together, the more powerful the idea or the ideology becomes and the less I have to take responsibility for my partner. I talked a long time ago how, I don't want to go there anymore. I, I was going to get into the, into, into the, um, the, 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 pro, the protests and my own experience of it. And what's occurring, what's most important to understand about all that is an agitated mind is never a helpful mind. That doesn't mean that if you're protesting you have an agitated mind, but I don't want to get into that. As David was saying, when we start going into that type of fabrication, we can no longer take responsibility for my actions. That's what bothered me about the idea of original sin, because it was imposed on me that I have absolutely no control over that. And that's what I really railed against. I didn't understand it until I did understand it. And then I made a decision. I am no longer... I, I am no longer stained by original sin. I let it go, and so I no longer was. It wasn't something I had to carry around with me. John, I had a question about that. Thank you. If you don't buy totally into the salvation part of that equation, again, you're relieved of responsibility, and dukkha is going to be your life. It, the understanding of dukkha. But, it, but it, what, a, what a great question. <laughs> what you're... I know what you're. I know the implication that you're saying, and it's not something you believe. And the implication is that if I take to the Dhamma, all I'm going to see is dukkha. What you when you take to the Dhamma, what you understand is the key theme that distracts people from living their life, which is dukkha. Dukkha is not just one. Dukkha is not just extreme pain. It's not a safe falling on your head. It's not mental anguish about what might happen, what my boss might say to me tomorrow. It's not worry about the fight I had with my spouse when I left the house. It's not confusion about who I am in the world. Dukkha is all of those things. Dukkha is everything from any, any type of mental confusion or disappointment to the extreme of, of extreme fear and rage. That's all part of Dukkha. And all of it is rooted, reacting to that is all rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. As we develop the Dhamma, we understand that inherent nature of human life and we stop reacting to it and we stop taking it personally. We stop making it familiar through clinging to it. As the Buddha says, we join with our suffering. That's what the self-identification with our suffering means we join with it. We become our suffering. And then the Buddha says, and we, we become anything other than self when we do that. What does that mean? Those that are inclined towards magic and mystical beliefs will say, oh, we've become something in another realm. No. The Buddha said that that pernicious belief in, rooted in ignorance causes us to become something that we're not in our mind. What is just said here? They see consciousness as... They see their consciousness as self or their self as their consciousness. 
We see our thinking as our self or the thinking as our consciousness. That means we've lost our minds, hasn't it? Our thinking has now taken over control of us rather than us having control of our thinking. Thank you, David. You inspired a, a lot of background information that was there. Um, did you have anything you want to add to that, though? I hope you do later. Thank you. The Buddha continues. This is what is meant by becoming entangled in the world. So, it, again, you could say becoming entangled in the world means become, we're losing our mind in relation to our relationship to the world. And how is one not entangled with the world? Well, a follower of the Dhamma, who is well-versed and well-trained well in the Dhamma, does not see form as self or the self as possessing form. With right view, with right view established, they do not see feeling as the self or the self as possessing feeling. With right view established, they do not see perceptions as self or the self as possessing perceptions. Excuse me. With right view established, they do not see fabrications as self or the self as possessing fabrications. With right view established, they do not see consciousness as the self or the self as possessing consciousness. This is called not being entangled in the world. Another way of saying all that is not taking anything personally. Not one thought personally. Why? Because it's not ourselves. As soon as we personalize any of these things, we've lost our mind. We've become anything other than what we are. Remember the Datu Habanga Sutta. A six-property person. A six-property person is a pure person. It's a person who is fully enmeshed in their life without being entangled in the world. The Buddha continues, To develop an auspicious day, remain present with your life as your life occurs. Why wouldn't you want to? Do not chase the past or project your thoughts to the future. Remain free of entanglements with the world and mindful of what is occurring. Be mindful of impermanence and uncertainty. Those that do so will have an auspicious day. So says this peaceful sage. Thank you. Isn't that a marvelous sutta? I hope I didn't interrupt it too much with my commentary to lose it, but I, there's just so much there. Um, let's, uh, let's go with, with uh, who's here first? Let's go with Jane. Jane, how are you? Oh, it's an auspicious day. <laughs> no. I just, you know, I spent most of my life either, you know, living in the past or worrying about the future or trying to fix problems. And I mean, it, it was tiring. Yeah. Really, really tiring. And since I began my Dhamma practice, I mean, you know, life is so much simpler and, you know, I feel lighter, literally. I feel lighter. I don't have the world. I'm, not carrying the weight of the world, so yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. That really is that really is seeing the light, isn't it? You know, Josh, how are you? Good, John. Hey, hi, everybody. Well, hey, I'm hey, Josh. My mind is spinning again, <laughs> and and uh, you know, I I don't think I'm as entangled. Now, as I used to be, but I, you know, as I heard the, heard the Sutta and, and, and I enjoyed it, and, and uh, I'm beginning to, to kind of grasp some of the ideas, but it kind of 
really runs counter to, to yeah. my concepts of, you know, uh, I've always kind of held this belief that there's kind of an ethical conduct in the world and, and there's a certain sense of uh, goodness and, and uh, not goodness and, and uh, 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 fairness and unfairness and so forth. And the, and the Buddha's telling me that, that uh, i got to let all that stuff go. That uh, uh, when I start thinking that way, I kind of start, I guess, start making judgments. And uh, uh, yeah. when I go down that path, I'm, I, I start losing my mind. That's right. And, and, uh, and I think there's some truth in that. But, I, but I'm still struggling with that to, to a certain degree. Yeah. Thank you for the suit. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Josh, for bringing it up because it, it is such a such an important point because when the uh, the initial ramifications of the Dhamma lead us to believe that aren't we supposed to strive for goodness and find goodness in the world and and eliminate all the things that are bad in the world? Shouldn't the world be fair, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? And the Buddha realized that's an aspect of the world. There is goodness in the world and there's badness in the world. You, if you want to use Biblical terms, you could say there's good and evil in the world. There, there is certainly evil, but it's not coming from Lucifer. It's just it's human nature. And when we try to apply things that are otherworldly to things like evil, then we we can we certainly can never resolve that. And not that we will, but we don't even have a chance. The Buddha teaches us through um, through very moral and ethical behavior. To live in the world that way as a way of being free of entanglement, not as a reward. In other words, I'm not going to be hurtful towards myself or others, not because God's watching and, and, and I'll, I'll get to heaven, I'll get my reward, but because it's the way to live in the world in the most effective and mindful way. It's the way to be a human being. Right here and right now. I, I, I surprised a few people, I think, months ago, and maybe even a few people left, when I said... Um, I mean, it's not a recent revelation of mine. I've thought this way for a long time that I don't see any good at all in the world. <gasps> but I don't see any bad either. That's equanimity. I don't have to look for good in the world to make the world relevant, do I? There's, there's, there's great goodness in the world. There's great good people. And there's great bad people. There's wonderful days and there's awful days. There's hurricanes and there's beautiful sunsets. That's the world. But, there's all, but the world will never be fair. And the best way I can describe that, that we should stop looking for fairness because we're going to drive ourselves crazy, is some people come into this world and live for three minutes and die. And some people come in this world and live for 110 years. Where's the fairness? That's the first thing that people should recognize is, well, life can't be fair. How could it be? It can't be. We should stop looking at it. We should be more concerned about the quality of our mind rather than what's occurring out there. So th thank you, Josh, for bringing that up. Um, let's, let's go to Sarah. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, this teaching was very pertinent, very relevant, as you know from our conversation this week, um, or not conversation, um, that uh, to get caught up in fabrications, whether they're fabrications of the paradigms we were raised in or fabrications of the political realm that we're raised in or that we have adapted or adopted um, those kinds of things we can get caught up in them and I, I have been 
very caught between those things from the past that you've had, that I've had woven into yep. me and fear of the future often based on those things that yep. uh, it it's really trapped me and as far as the the fairness thing last summer I was out on a boat and I noticed there were all of these caterpillars on on the lake that I was on and there was this one caterpillar that was squiggling and wiggling and 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 just really wrestling and there were all these other caterpillars and they were just kind of laying there and they were all alive um, and all of them were probably gonna die and and I just it really did this effect on me because I was raised in that salvation mm. mentality um, that that uh, uh, God, I can't save all of these caterpillars. And if I did, what would the, all of these caterpillars do to the uh, equilibrium of the environment? Or what kind of caterpillars were they? Or what would they do? What would the effect of that be? Um, but and and would I have harmed something to save even one, <laughs> or or to not save one? Yeah. Um, and it really got me thinking. That I thought and. Does God not care about all of these caterpillars? Um, you know, which of the caterpillars did He not care about? If you have that kind of God mentality, then you've got a lot of explaining to do, and yep. you've got a lot of wrestling to do, and then and it, that really just did a wrenching of my perspective as far as um, so is that you know do I really think that God is the or the power? Is that specific that he cares about one caterpillar and not another, or things like that? Um, so it really just set me into that. These caterpillars just are, and some of them are going to live, and some of them are going to die. And it doesn't. Some some that squiggle will make it to shore, and some that don't will make it to shore, and the rest are going to die. And and that's the way it is in life. And I was thinking yeah. about the other day when I'm driving along, like. I've been caught up so much in fear. Fear: Will I be able to have a job if I if I if my brain doesn't work right? If I can't remember things, will I be able to keep a job? If I can't keep a job, can I support myself? If I can't support myself, what's going to happen to me? And then I just am driving along. And I'm thinking, who am I that I think that I should be the one that is going to you know succeed somehow in life to some level? Or what if I you know what would be the worst that would happen? I would die <laughs> you know i mean it's just like as if it shouldn't happen to me yeah so, anyways people, yeah <laughs> thank you sarah but we we do think that way don't we 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 think that we should be the first human being that never dies you know i used to think that way you know i i, I remember when i was younger trying to come up with a scheme that i could at least get to 120 really until i realized i don't know if i want to live to 120 i don't know if i want to live to 66 i'll be 65 on saturday uh, Sarah, will you? Uh, I'll be home uh, available around 9:30 tonight, um, if that's not too late for you. But I'd love to talk to you tonight or tomorrow if we can. All right, thank you. <laughs> David, how are you tonight? Good, um, I'm also thank you. Thank you for being here and your input. Brad, how are you? Where are you? There you are. Uh, good to be here. Thanks for your teaching. Also very relevant in my life. I feel. Um, just kind of well, yeah, yeah, David said, you know, I feel like I'm in a place where there's, you know, you can kind of keep on with the, up with the fabrications, but then you do that, it's like a lack of responsibility for, you know, getting into the present moment and living yeah. that current 
moment by moment life. And uh, I, I feel like it's like a leap, but it's, you know, it's, you know, how to get, more is more jhana meditation, you know, more meditation, more letting, letting other fabrications, yeah. more uh, practice, I guess, to get more refined mind. And yeah, that, and that's it. You know, it, it really is just continued practice. So responsibility has to do with with right here, right now, doesn't it? In other words, I'm not responsible for the past because I can't do anything about it can't change it, and I certainly can't be responsible for the next moment. I don't know what's going to happen. The only thing, the only, in fact, you could say the only application of the word responsible is in this moment. It's the only thing that I, that I am responsible for, and it's the only thing that I can be responsible for, is what's occurring right now. It's where all, it's where all human power resides. When you, you, talk, when you talk to, and I, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people, and I talk to many people who are in the worst crisis they're ever going to be at a certain point in their life. And the, the, the defining characteristic of that is, is they feel like completely out of control. Everyone, every human being I've ever talked to at that crisis point feels the, 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 the critical point is that they have no control over what's occurring. Whether it's someone in early stages of recovery or someone in, in, in great grief, whatever it is, you've lost control. And so the resolution is always, how do I gain control? Well, you can't do it by sheer will. You can only do it by understanding and applying that understanding right here, right now. That's responsibility. Thank you, Brett. Thank you. Hello, Rob. Hello, John. Um, yeah, although I've, I've read this sip a few times. You've heard it a few times, haven't you? Yeah. Um, and the first part, you know, not being... Uh, taken in by the past or the future, that, that's simple, very straightforward, you know, it's, it's clear. Uh, the second part where, where he talks about not being entangled in the world, he asked the question, how are you not entangled in the world? And he goes directly to your view of self. Yeah. Um, that takes a bit longer to, to, to get that connection going. Yeah. Um, isn't it interesting, the progression from the first sentence to the second? Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's it, it focusing the dollar even when you understand it. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt it's, you. It's, it's more in, in the very present, and it's how you see yourself yeah. in the present. Yeah. Uh, that's how you're not entangled in the world. Uh, you're not taking it personally, um, and you discard all these strange ideas that you have about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just every time it's helpful to read this one again and, and, and think your way through this this these steps that you have to take as you take. Uh, once you do that, you do have an auspicious day. Yeah. Uh, and the days are, you know, the days become more more auspicious as you as you see this better as it becomes clearer in your mind yes. what you're doing and, and you know, how you're screwing yourself up. Yeah, rec recognizing the auspiciousness of this moment mm -hmm. is recognizing the potential mm -hmm. for awakening in this moment, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. So I'm going to put you on a spot if I can. If you, if you just don't want to answer it, it's fine. Yeah. I'm going to do it anyway. How does 
not projecting your thoughts to the past or to the future relate to dependent origination. From ignorance comes fabrication, from suffering. Yes. So there, there's your, there's the beginning of dependent origination. Yep, yep, yep. And the fabrications follow like as the the cartwheel to the oxen hoof. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. I asked the right person that question. Thank you, Kim. How are you? It's good to see you again. Hi. How was your meditation? Oh, I didn't, I didn't almost fall asleep this time. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I ask questions? Oh, you, you can ask or say anything you'd like. So I'm having a little difficulty understanding this fabrication. Uh -huh. So I'm a born again Christian. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It kind of sounds like what you. So I think what when you were explaining like the salvation, the path of salvation by doing all these things. So I think that's Catholic Catholicism, yep. which is, and, and this is, I'm not, like, I'm just trying to Oh, no, please speak freely. You're, you're um, so, like, as a born-again Christian, I don't believe that. I believe that my salvation comes from just having faith that Jesus was the my Savior. Uh -huh. And I don't live my life, like, doing good deeds because I think he's going to give me something in the end. I believe I already have that salvation by asking. But I live my life doing good deeds because that's the way it should. Um, so I'm wondering, like, I have a counselor. He's, he's for a chronic illness. He's a Catholic priest and a Buddhist monk. So it's, it's, he's both of them. And he lives a monastic life, and he's lived with the, the monks and all that. He got special permission from the Vatican. So I'm kind of wondering if, like, can't, can't they be, like, intertwined in so, like, what, what you're trying to teach me and what I already believe without, I mean, with absolute faith and 100% of my fiber and opinion. Um, I believe that in, in you know Christianity, can't they be? Can't somebody be both? And can somebody be both? Yeah. To answer your question, the, the answer is. You know, the answer is yes. You can be both, but you're going to have a difficulty reconciling um, aspects of the two beliefs that that are really can't be reconciled. Um, so you can hold in mind the, the quality of mind that I am saved by Jesus. And that's, that's simply a, a thought and a belief. While you can also develop a well-concentrated mind and a Dhamma practice that is unconcerned with salvation. So the, the Dhamma is not concerned with salvation, but that doesn't mean that... How do I say this? Personally, I don't believe that Jesus Christ could be my Savior. But I would never say that you shouldn't believe it, or Brett, or Rama, or anyone else. 
as a Dhamma teacher, what I want to teach you is how to practice a pure Dhamma. So if you try to conflate the Dhamma with Jesus Christ as your Savior, I don't think you're respecting your own. I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm not saying yeah, this is what you're doing. To me, that's not respecting that, that belief. At the same time that I'm deepening my understanding of human life. The, the, uh, I'm making it clear, you don't have to, have to reconcile religions. Because one is a religion, it's faith-based, and one is, is uh, practically based, the Dhamma. It's going to be up to you if you can, if you can manage that. I, don't, I couldn't. I, don't, I, I got to the point where I found my greatest relief is when I let go of all of those magical and mystical beliefs with the understanding that I just don't know. So I don't know that if I die now, I don't know what's going to happen. But I don't speculate on it either. I don't, I don't do something so that I'll be saved. My assumption is that if there's a creator God that really loves me, I'm probably good to go anyway. Not really. I, mean, that, I don't think I have to consider that or appeal to that type of God. But there's also an aspect of the Dhamma that insists that we be harmless to ourselves and others. It's the middle factors of the Eightfold Path, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So there's a moral component that I live anyway, and that I would live anyway if I believed the, in the Ten, the ten Commandments. And I would live exactly the same way. So you know, maybe I'm, you could say I'm hedging my bets by, by doing that. But my practice is pure, and your practice could be pure, and you could still maintain that mind of salvation. Um, and at some point, you may choose to address it, but you may not. Does that help you? A little bit. Um, and so I, I would just encourage you to continue, Kim, with, with that very open mind that you have. And it, 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 it's a good open mind. Um, make your own choices. You don't have to abandon Jesus Christ as your Savior because you're a Dhamma practitioner or because I say the Dhamma is not That's based on salvation. That's it's just two different things. You know? Can I say something to Sarah? Oh, please. Uh, she left. Oh. Do you know Sarah? No. Oh. I want to talk about the caterpillars. Ah. God loves every single caterpillar, but it's just part of life that sometimes people get sick and sometimes caterpillars have to die. So mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do with God, who God loves or who God does, you know. That's it's just life. Yeah, it's just life. That's a that's a realistic view of life. Like, I don't blame people for I don't blame God for my illnesses. That's just my, that's the that's the body I got. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, Sarah, if you can pass that on to her. I'm gonna hopefully I'll talk to her tonight or tomorrow well, and I'll let her know. But that's yeah, that's right. That's a clear view. That's a that's a, a view that's supported by the Dhamma. You know, just like just like humans live and die, you know, so so do worms and mice and everything else. Part of it. Thank you, Kim. Julia, how are you? I'm good, John. Um, I wrote something because I um, kind of had this experience, and so I think that this is kind of what an auspicious day would mean. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to try to read it slow so people can understand, understand this. Um, an auspicious day is a moment when you recognize that the feeling that arose within from a particular experience at point of contact was from conditioned thinking. From, from either clinging or an aversion to a past experience. Understanding that this feeling has arisen from an experience that arose and passed away in the past is understanding this experience is like foam on the ocean. 
like foam, it dissipates and is gone. This is not the self. By seeing this as it is, you recognize the futility of it. You recognize that this whole experience arises and passes away, and also this self. This is not, this not self also arises and passes away and will not exist. So there is no projection into the future and grasping to the fear that it may occur again. This understanding of dukkha within the three marks of existence comes because of profound right view at the present moment by witnessing the wheel of dependent origination. Witnessing this condition, response, and understanding the not-self allows you to have compassion for this self in the past. When this realization within profound right view exists, you become liberated and the pain is gone. This is an, an auspicious day, the day no longer subject to clinging to this conditioning from the past or projecting it into the present moment and are finally released from it. In interactions with others, you recognize the reflection of this process of dependent origination occurring. Only when you have been compassionate to yourself can you give compassion to another. This process in the relationship compels healing and falls further becoming ignorant within a relationship. That, that's beautiful, Julie. Thank you. Thank you, Really John. well said. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, John. It just came to me, so I had to write it down because it was too complex to, to, to like repeat it again. Yeah, and, and writing it helps just clarify it in your own mind, too, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. I, I always have to, I'm yeah. definitely have a person I have to write it down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank thank you. you. Thank you, John. <laughs> Michael, how are you? I'm good, John. Uh, I agree with uh, what Julie uh, had uh, penned there. Uh, I think it's uh, spot on. Just uh, when you had mentioned that question uh, there before, Rob, uh, about past and future and, and how it uh, um, relates to pen's origination, um, when the mind is not united with the body, that's when we're going to experience dependent origination. Um, uh, stilling, stilling the mind uh, enables us to be present here and now, the life as it occurs, as it unfolds. Yep. And when we're here and now, and life is unfolding before us, we're not fabricating at that point. Do you agree with that? Yes. So if we're not fabricating, then again, our mind is still calm and peaceful. And I think that's, uh, and that's the only way uh, to practice the Dhamma. By being present, so yeah. it kind of it kind of leads up, you know, into that. If you want to practice the Dhamma, you have to do jhana so that your concentration enables you to stay in the present. Yeah. That's right. Again, well said. Well, beautifully said. Uh, it 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 all. I'm, I'm just going to repeat your words. It all comes down to wise restraint in this present moment. That's where Dhamma is. And, you you followed the you found the link to dependent origination. It was yes, I did. I'm, uh, I'm sorry I didn't uh, email you back. Oh, I'm, I'm just glad you found it. Uh, no, I did. Uh, actually, uh, it was very good, and I appreciate you sending it over. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I'm disorganized to the point that I didn't know what I could do. And Julia couldn't find out where it was, and uh, so I must have had a really uh, well hidden. <laughs> you know, just you you could. There's a search box right at the top of the page. Ever just just do a search on it, and it'll yeah. it'll come up. No, it's, uh, I'm getting it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if I could borrow that headset. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try it. How are you, Tim? 
evening, everybody. Good evening, everybody online. Um, thank you, Julia, for that. Uh, more and more, I uh, leave this Uta and, and going through the Dhammapada. Uh, the more I, I recognize the uh, the starting point of understanding the Dhamma is really getting a grasp on the three marks of existence. Yeah. Um, everything revolves around it. Uh, this particular sutta, I, it was quite clear uh, the Buddha referencing the five aggregates throughout throughout the Sutta yep. and the marks of existence. And, uh, the one thing that um, you're and you're that you spoke about worry and fear. Worry worry and fear, a lot of these words I think deal with time, past, present, and future. Yeah. Worry is a fear of the future present issues affecting the future and it leading into the past. So time's always involved. And the, I always find it fascinating that the smallest moment of time is the present. It is the most minute point in existence. The past and future are much broader and to remain present, I, I, since now I realize that it's not about remaining present in that, that minute moment. It's it's the way life unfolds. Yep. <laughs> like a wave. Yep. 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 Like riding the crest of a wave, and uh, so these suttas really reinforce those ideas. And for me, like I said again, I'll repeat because I think it's important to Julia's point. Those three marks of understanding, gaining that compassion for oneself, and I struggle with this, if, if you have self-loathing because of past transgressions, there's no way you could be truly, purely compassionate to others and be able to practice the Dhamma yeah. in the right, right way. And so, those, that's a, that's what we talk about reconciliation uh, through the Dhamma, uh, being gentle with oneself, and then finally, if I gain anything from this and the understanding is that everything arises and, arises and passes away, <laughs> and that is impermanence, yep. which is three marks of existence. So it's, it, it really starting to flow with me a lot better as I reread all these suttas. <laughs> And I listen to everybody in the song as well, and my teacher as well. So thank you. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, did I get everyone? Can I just say one thing? Please. Also, that, as Tim said, the, that moment, that present moment, which is the smallest, you overlay the heartwood, and that's where your practice is. And that's where you don't have to worry about the past or the future. Of course, you have to make your plans and be prepared versus worry. But that overlaying of the, the heartwood is exactly what we're here for. Yes. Wonderful, David. The present moment is huge. 
because you're, you're, in the, you're not hemmed in by, by the past and the future. You're just, it's here and it's fast. It's spacious, isn't it? It's spacious. That's what people talk about. They hope to achieve in meditation is a spaciousness, this quality of mind. But that's, that's spaciousness. It's not being stuck in the past or the future, it, it's not but being time. present with all time. of life. It's right. not the shortest moment. It is. It's it, 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 it has to do with how, how you phrase it, right? Or, yeah. like how the context, because yeah, scientifically it is, but from oh, what yeah. you're describing, you're absolutely correct. Because if that space is created, absolutely, that's when you're living. There's, yeah. Everything else doesn't exist. The, the present, right. and the, the past, and the, and, the, and the future, it's not even something you consider. <laughs> Or, or worry, or worry about, or have it affect you. Yeah, and, and, and the concept of uh, spaciousness and ease, they roll together. As you're at ease in the, is in the present, uh, it is spacious, and, and vice versa. Uh, you know, you've got you've got room to <laughs> move around. You got elbow room. I was speaking with someone. I don't think it was here about the the true mindfulness has its own tonal quality. And that tonal quality of equanimity, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's harmony. Our, our minds are harmonized with what's occurring internally. Mm -hmm. there, there, there's no, what's this, there's a word in there. There's no dissonance anymore, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Michael, you had a, a, a comment? Yeah, just quick, uh, quickly. Uh, I agree with uh, Ron, and uh, I like uh, truth assessment of uh, Um, the past and the future don't exist. Uh, we only give them life uh, by uh, fabricating. Yep. Uh, that's that's the way I understand it. Yeah. Because they're, they're not here now, and unless we project into the future, into the past, and that's the fabrication. Now we're heading towards another role with any origination. Yeah. yeah. So what we what we realize through Dhamma practice um, and understanding the, what is what a human being is, is a six-property person, period, no, ma no matter what we might want to attach to it, we really can't. And so then we understand that the, the big question, what is a self? Well, the self is simply a reference point for life unfolding. The self is simply a reference point for what's occurring. So why wouldn't I want myself to understand what's occurring? It's the only thing I can do to have a life. And so talking about salvation, that's that's salvation here on earth. And, and touching on what Kim was saying, there may be another salvation. Within the framework of the Dhamma, what I don't, I don't need to consider that. I need to consider what's occurring right now because then, you could say it this way, I have all my bases covered because I've regained control of my mind. I've regained control of my mind. I am in the process of living my life. I am... My experience right here and right now is simply a reference to what's occurring. That's why we have minds, isn't it? To reference what's occurring. And we have bodies united with that mind to interact with what's occurring. But we, when we don't understand that process, we become what? Anything other than that self. We become anatta. You become what? I, the, the Pali word is anatta, and the reason why I bring it up now um, it's a common word that usually is, is meant to mean that the self is nothing or the self is empty. The right use of the word anatta simply means that the views that we're holding of a self aren't really a self. Let go of the self. They're not a self. Anatta means not self. 
So we be in the Dhamma, we become anything other than self, which means we become anything other than a human being. John, can I just say one thing? Yes. I just want to say one thing to him. Um, look at this practice just as a practice that will help you become this person who's a better person and you can understand the golden rule that you would talk Shut down. Do unto others as you would have done to yourself. It's compassion. It's, this is what I was trying to explain is that when you have this compassion for yourself, you can have it and give it to others. So you can do unto others as yeah. you would do to yourself. Because why would you want to hurt yourself, right? Yeah. But then you wouldn't do it to someone else. Yeah. But this teaches you that. This way of, this is a way of life. It's not it's not it's not a religion, it's a way of being so that you can be a better person. So that you can live like Jesus. A good soul. A good, I mean a good person that comes and does exactly that. Does kind of acts of compassion to others. Thank you. No, you, you, you describe that better than I did. You know, again, we have all our bases covered. We'd be in the Dhamma. The Dhamma made me be the person that I thought I should be when I practiced Roman Catholicism. But it did it in a natural way. I didn't have to do it out of fear that if I don't do this, I'm going to burn in hell forever. Which may be true. I mean, again, I'm not saying that it's not true. I don't find that belief useful to my life. That's, so that's why I don't, I don't promote it in any way within myself or to others. What a great class. And the, the, the questions that, that are being raised here through the Dhamma show a real understanding of, what, of, of the Dhamma. It's, really, it's remarkable. Um, We've got to close, though. So we'll close with Metta, as we always do. So again, find your relaxed meditative posture. Close your eyes, close your mouth, and become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And these are the Buddha's words on metta, from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. 
If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.